More than machinery, we need humanity. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. Silence, the great and powerful Oz knows why you have come. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. You have meddled with the primal forces of nature. Don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think, or what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. <laughs> Jason Burmes. And who loves you? And who do you love? And we are live. Look, I know you're still looking at a thumbnail with a badly <laughs> misspelled automating. And yesterday I had three years on it. We're going by the fly, uh, the uh, the seat of our pants today. Uh, I'm human. I make mistakes. And I'm trying to fix that thumbnail right now. That doesn't mean we don't have a banger of a show. We always have a banger of a, sh of a show. And uh, despite adversity, I promise you guys that I will figure it out. We will win ball games, and we will face the robot takeover of Chipotle together. And it's not just Chipotle. I could have done White Castle as well. But seeing as uh, White Castle in many ways isn't really around anyway... Well, you know, I'll fix that one uh, last. But I wanted to start with this story. We're also going to be talking about a corrupt FBI and how the system uh, really works, how these war of terror, okay, the wars of terror are created. And uh, really, most people want to believe that we're not that far gone that the FBI is not totally and completely beholden to a system of corruption. It is. They don't want to believe that a lot of jobs really are not going to be around in five to 10 years. They're not. They're on their way out. Okay. They're on their way. Bye-bye. Rise of the restaurant robots. Chipotle and White Castle are spending over 500 thousand dollars a month five hundred thousand dollars a month on automation to combat labor shortages and rising food costs but it is still cheaper than paying human workers you're on your way out they're automating you out of everything this is not an accident this is actually something that they announced when i say they uh chipotle in particular about two years ago uh, two years ago, they said, look, it's time to bring in the robots. We love the robots. The robots are great. And look, you know, if the robots are going to be doing something, probably uh, serving human beings food, not the worst thing. But 
this shows you uh, the continuation uh, of us losing large sections of the economy for American citizens. And what do I mean by that? Well, so many people 10, 15 years ago, the mantra when you still called, quote unquote, migrants, illegal immigrants, remember when the, when that was terminology, they would tell you, oh, no, they're, they're doing the work nobody else wants to do. Do you want to do that work, Jason? Do you want to do the manual labor? Do you want to do the yard work and the cleaning? And I would always say, and you go back 10, 15 years when I was talking about this, the vast majority of those jobs were youth driven and neighborhood driven and community driven. And it was something for people who did not have the traditional after school or part-time job coming up could do and it would build character and those people did want to do that job and that they liked having money and setting goals and it prepared them better for when they got out into the world and society and actually had to take jobs nope nope instead a generation of what learned helplessness came in okay a generation that expected instant gratification a generation that didn't just want a trophy for participation, they wanted to pay for work they either didn't do or weren't good at, or weren't even good at. And we see it again and again and again. And meanwhile, the people at the top, the ones that had infiltrated the education systems and aided this are sitting there laughing and snickering because the future doesn't need us, okay? Meet Chippy, Chipotle's robotic kitchen assistant. And Chippy, here. This is, uh, again, oh, this is from uh, March of, of 2022. Chipotle goes automated. But I remember seeing um, stories. Is, is this a, a video story? Yeah, let's watch it now. Uh, up to two years ago on this. Let's see what we got. Are we going to get a commercial from CNBC? Chipotle is getting a little help in the kitchen from Chippy. The robot from Miso Robotics is an autonomous kitchen assistant tasked with making one of the company's signature menu items, chips. Via AI, it's trained to make the exact recipe, including with salt and a hint of lime. Chief Technology Officer Kurt Garner told me this was about making things more fluid for restaurants, particularly during peak times. We started the idea around how could we use technology and artificial intelligence to be a better predictor of when we might run out of chips and find better ways or times throughout the day to make them. Uh, but then started thinking more broadly about ways that we might automate some of the more mundane and re repetitive parts uh, of chip making and provide a better tool for our restaurant teams. Just so everybody knows, the vast majority of what you're going to do in a kitchen, other than it being high spaced or a high paced and very on demand, it's gonna be mundane and boring. It's gonna be the same thing again and again and again and again. No, you wanna save on labor costs. 
You want a bigger profit. That's what automation's really for. Chippy is being tested at the Chipotle Cultivate Center. That's the company's innovation hub in Irvine, California. And it'll be used in a restaurant in Southern California later this year. The company is relying on the StageGate process it uses for new menu items to test and learn from workers and guests before deciding whether it should move ahead with a national rollout of Chippy. The company also said it's not looking to solve for a labor shortage with the robot, even as the great resignation continues to impact the broader sector. We didn't approach this from a lens of trying to solve for a labor problem. We approached it from a lens of what would make it easier, more fun, more rewarding in a restaurant? How do we take more fun and reward? That's what they're so they're not worried about the quote unquote great resignation, which isn't real either, by the way. That, that's that's not a real thing, the great resignation. It's Johnny nonsense, everybody. That's what it is. There's no great resignation. You set up a system where you inflated the economy and incentivized people not to work. You taught a generation, learned helplessness, and now almost 10% of men who are of working age and able to work don't even want to work. They never resigned from anything because they never worked for anything. This is, again, by design. Take away some of the tasks that team members don't like and give them more time to focus on the tasks that they do, uh, like preparing food and serving guests. The idea is for Chipotle to continue to lead on technology, Garner said, mentioning dishwashing as another place where automation could come in handy in the future, along with leveraging new technologies and ways to run its digital kitchens. Digital sales made up 41.6% of the company's total sales last quarter and is a very important part of the growing business. I'm Kate Rogers. CNBC and again, this is not stopping. It is going to advance. It is coming. This is the next step. Learned helplessness, universal basic incomes, and inflation so that even if you do have work, you are working hard, your money no longer lasts as long or has the same type of purchasing power. So please take our universal basic slave income. Okay, I want to shift gears a little bit. There was a film, I don't even remember the title of it, out a couple years ago where they were kind of mocking the Federal Bureau of Investigation and its system of quote unquote catching terrorists, because guess what, folks? They don't catch terrorists, they make terrorists. The FBI is the number one purveyor of recruiting terrorists. And uh, this is an interview with the, uh, I believe it's the, the writer director of the film talking about the absurdity of the FBI Seeing as the FBI is absolutely a criminal organization and the January 6th trials are starting and, you know, I conversation with my girlfriend last night, it's rigged, man. I know I had Randy Ireland on yesterday and he was trying to put a smile on and a happy face and, and, and looking like, uh, you know, there's some positivity in this. There is none. I'm sorry. I, I, w I wish there was positivity other than maybe waking some more people up, which I think is going to be tough to do with the narrative that's out there, by the way. No, there, there's nothing positive. We have an FBI that is a criminal organization. So we're also gonna play a clip of Trump back in the day talking about how uh, Mueller and the FBI should accept the invitation, okay, accept the invitation of old Poot Poot, 
and go and investigate on behalf of old Poot Poot, whether or not the Ruskies, you know, the ones that were supposedly uh, padding Trump's bank account, that we now know that's also fiction, right? Poot Poot said, hey, if you think we we hacked the election or hacked some sort, come on in, come investigate. Mueller and the gang uh, had no desire to do that. So uh, let's play this clip where uh, this gentleman in the entertainment industry expertly breaks down what the FBI is really all about. Is one, who is the biggest recruiter of terrorists in the USA? And two, what would you do if you were broke, about to lose your house, and someone offered you 100 grand? And that's really, the, the answer to the first question is, rather surprisingly, the biggest recruiter of terrorists in the States is the FBI. Mm -hmm. And the answer to the second one gives you the clue as to how our story works. Because the FBI have accidentally, it seems, developed a system which works rather well. And the system is they make up a terrorist plot, they find someone to try and carry it out, and they arrest them for doing that. And then get the kudos for having fought the great war against terrorists. Well, they get, they, they get all sorts of things, really. I mean, it's quite complicated, but I guess the essential element of our story is that these people are not terrorists, but the government ends up putting them in jail for very as long if terms. they were. Yes, 25, 30 years. And there's a close to 100% conviction rate in these cases. And I wasn't looking for this. I wasn't aware of this. I mean, I think we all sort of have a vague idea that the FBI may, may be involved in setting people up. But then when you follow the story that I did and you see it close up, it, it's jaw-dropping. It's really shocking and very, very hard to believe. Um, not hard to believe if you have followed the trail of corruption since pre-9-11 and especially the... Uh, 1993 bombing, which I highlight in Invisible Empire, A New World Order Defined, and the FBI recruited somebody to build the bomb that went off and killed eight people. And had it been parked in the correct place by the Patsies, would have killed a whole lot more. And if you think 9-11 was a tragedy of 3,000 people, why don't you envision a fully packed World Trade Center with 15,000 to 30,000 people inside, toppling from the bottom into New York City onto not a sparse, but a heavy and dense population. You could have been looking at, again, anywhere from 20 to 40,000 deaths like that, like that, over 10 times the damage of 9-11 much earlier. Can you imagine what uh, what these monsters would have done? Look at how they capitalized on Oklahoma City, and then look how they really capitalized on 9-11. Had the 93 bombing gone their way, things could have been out of control. Uh, and yet <laughs> the statistics, once you lay them out, are, are quite extraordinary. I mean, uh, we're talking about 100 incidents of the FBI doing this, 100 known incidents. More, and actually, more. Yes, I mean, I say it's based on 100 true stories. That's yeah. a sort of notional 100. It's in the right ballpark. It's more likely 300. But 300 times the FBI have managed to pin a crime on essentially innocent people who were just part of some casual grouping who they trained to be terrorists and then arrested and jailed. Yes, if I may take the FBI's side for a second, it sort of works like this. 
you're freaked out by 9-11, you have to cover yourself because you're implicated in some of the sloppy procedures that led to 9-11. So you talk the threat up. You say there's a sleeper cell in every city, and then you go and find it. Now, you don't know what you're looking for. And classically in the FBI, you talk about other people, you other, you look at brown and black people because they are more likely, you think, to be a problem. And if somebody sticks their head up in one of those communities, then you surround them with false friends, informants, who will offer them money and friendship to try and lure them along a sort of carefully scripted program of self-incrimination. And by the way, you know, he, he does correctly, at least in the initial stages, of the war on terror, you know, Muslims in many cases were the scapegoats. That's over. That's over. Now it's the white folks, right? It's the constitutionalists. And and really, they set up the infrastructure that way from the beginning, but knew that more people would accept it if, again, it was associated with Middle Eastern terrorism, all right, people that didn't look like them. Uh, they wouldn't go into looking at how they were set up. They would just accept the narrative. But now that narrative is changing. And with their uh, real-time censorship that's still around big tech all over the place, they brought in the idea of not only you know, uh, white supremacy and terrorism, but now insurrection. And especially when we're looking at January 6th, the idea that you go to a rally, you may or may not have broken some laws that doesn't really uh, seem to matter in this case. And instead of just charging you with the crimes on the books, you're a terrorist. Which results in that person going to jail. And you will say to the court as a prosecutor, is it better that this person goes to jail or that we let them go back out on the street? And the juries always say, better put them in jail. I mean, in, the, in real life, what happened was that there was a story on British TV news about the, supposedly the biggest plot since 9-11 about an army planning to launch a full ground war on the US based in Miami. And it turned out three years later, I bumped into somebody involved in the trial who said that ground war was actually seven construction workers who were going to ride into Chicago on horses. This was not a really serious terrorist plot. They had just been wound up by an FBI informant. They had no money. The informant was offering a lot of cash. And so they riffed a crazy scheme to try and get this guy out of money to try and take money off the sky. So that true story and loads of others informed the story within the film, which yes, these, in that case, in the Liberty City 7 case, which was the, the guys with the horses, um, six out of seven of them were Haitian Catholics. Well, as a journalist having watched it, obviously my immediate reaction was to go and look up the figures, try and see what else I could find. And it is incredible that this has happened on such a scale. And you begin to look at American justice and say, how has so revered a system as, as it is in America itself come up with an incapacity to spot the charade that's being put before them? I just think there's no will to examine it. I mean, I think that once George Bush said, you're either for us or against us, there was a kind of division in American society between us and them, which had always been there, but it was somehow legitimized by the government and the FBI acted on that same impulse. If you think of that George Bush statement, for us or against us, you legitimize a divide in society right there. Now, Donald Trump comes in 16 years later and exploits that divide. It's not the only thing. There's all sorts of other kind of destabilizers involved. But I think that once you polarize society, 
that way. And it sort of happened with us after 9-11, that there was this kind of sudden, suddenly you've got a new other. And it seems to me that the thing to ridicule is that tendency. For example, if you look at Trump, suddenly the FBI were momentarily the good guys because they might bring him down. No, they're never good guys. And, but his, his technique fooled everyone into sort of a moment's mistake. Oh, suddenly the FBI, the good, no. I mean, it's like with Nixon, the FBI instigated the Watergate inquiry. It didn't make them the good guys then. They were up to their necks in COINTEL Pro. So Trump's move is to confuse people, yes, but you've got to stick to what's actually happening. And I think that, yeah, you need to take notes pretty fast right now, but I don't think he's escaped ridicule. I mean, he is self-ridiculing, but you're always going to be able to ridicule someone like that. Yeah, absolutely. Guy, a guy nailed it. Talked about Cointel Pro, and here is Trump, uh, you know, talking about uh, what Mueller could have done again, but it was never a real probe. It was all about this narrative of Russia, 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 Russia. The lead up to the summit, you actually tweeted out if you were given the great city of Moscow for retribution for all the sins, et cetera, of, of Russia. The media would be asking why you didn't get St. Petersburg as well. I said that. I said, if I got Moscow as a uh, as part of a deal, they said, here's Moscow. Please, please ball. pardon us. Uh, that soccer ball was really very nice. I have to say it was very nice. You know, they and by the way, look how much Trump has aged since just this interview right here. Presidency takes it out of you, man, especially if you're on the last legs of your life. You're in that twilight. You're in that, uh, you know. Uh, third portion, that third act. I mean, I, Trump doesn't even look like the same person here. He did a great job in in running that. But it is true. I, you know, I should, if I got Moscow, they'd want St. Petersburg, or they'd want more. So the media was a very unfair. I never thought, this was when I said, this is foolproof. I raised $44 billion, and the Secretary General said he raised $44 billion, and it was only President Trump. Because I said, well, otherwise, we're going to have to start thinking about our relationship to NATO. I also said this. NATO is wonderful, but it helps Europe a lot more than it helps us. NATO is not wonderful, Mr. Trump. And again, it is really the vehicle for a global military and the Great Reset agenda. And asking why we're even a part of NATO post-Cold War was the correct thing and not placating to the idea that we need to keep it. And yet we're paying for 90% of it. So uh, I was amazed that the most of the media, you didn't, and some others didn't, but much of the media said that I was uh, tough, very tough and nasty to foreign leaders. And I really wasn't at all, but I did say you have to pay up. We talked about Europe as a foe. You talked about Vladimir Putin as a foe and you, Clarify that means a competitor. Similarly, the media is upset. You say an enemy of the people. Aren't you really saying that they're not doing their job? And well, when I say enemy of the people, I'm not talking about all the media. I'm talking about there is a big percentage of media. When you look at CNN, how false their reports are. When you look at NBC and some of the others, when you read the New York Times, it's just story after story after story that's uh, just a negative spin and we're doing great things we have the greatest economy in the history of our country we have the Crushed. best unemployment numbers in the history of our country over best african-american unemployment numbers in history hispanic numbers in history women's numbers in history states you know I, again shouldn't have played into the identity politics donnie 
just what they want you to do. Records. 14 straights. I didn't know Record that. Record low unemployment. I'm surprised it's only 14, actually. That's a disappointing number. Uh, well, keep working hard. <laughs> I think it'll get there. But the more amazing thing, too, is we have more jobs available than we actually have people on unemployment. First and one time. Of, First and time. the labor participation rate in the country First has never been higher. First time. Let me go back because uh, everybody in the media is so focused on this. In 2014 in the Washington Times, Devin Nunes said with a certainty that Russia would try to impact the 2016 elections. Barack Obama, in the month before the 2016 elections, and I will read and I will quote, no serious per person out there would suggest that somehow you could even rig America's elections, no evidence that it has happened in the past, which is not true, and number two, or that it could happen in this election. And I invite Mr. Trump to stop whining and to go out there and try and get votes. He would said that two weeks before the election. Well, he thought Hillary Clinton was going to win, and he didn't want to do anything to disturb it. And, you know, frankly, when I won, he said, this is the biggest deal. But before I won, he said, this is nothing and it can't happen. It's a very dishonest deal. And, you know, you have to find out who did Peter Strzok report to, because it was Comey and it was McCabe, but it was also probably Obama. Uh, if you think that Obama didn't know what was going, when you watch, and I said it today with President Putin, when you watch Peter Strzok's performance, the lover of Lisa Page, when you watch that performance, the FBI, I'll tell you, I know so many people in the FBI, these are incredible people, what they have to, what they're going through watching this guy, a total phony. I mean, how about, uh, we'll stop it. Here's the deal. That's who gets elevated. The guys like Peter Strzok, that guy, you know, the guy cheating on his wife with his partner, the guy who actually went to look into Seth Rich and proved beyond any reasonable doubt after the fact that, of course, the FBI had files on Seth Rich that they were lying about, that they would lie about continuously before this. And quickly note in the Mueller report where, again, they inverted reality and acted like Assange and WikiLeaks put out a conspiracy theory regarding Seth Rich, why to cover up the ties with Russia, 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 that they could never prove. Or something to that no, effect. He said, we will stop you. Yeah, well. We'll stop him. And then. Insurance And he policy. said, originally, I guess it was the two of them. No. Then he said the next day, well, I meant the American people. And even the Democrats say, that doesn't work. Uh, no, reports, no, Lisa Page contradicted him and gave a more honest assessment. I heard she did much better than he did, and she was honest and took a lot of hard shots, but at least she was honest about it. Uh, he's a disgrace to our country. He's a disgrace to the great FBI, a disgrace. And how he's still being paid is beyond belief. Not only being paid, but then promoted by these monsters, allowed to set up, I believe he got to go with a GoFundMe that got like a quarter million dollars. You see, GoFundMe and other large payment systems and payment processors, they'll do what? They'll go after American citizens or Canadian truckers and stop them from raising money. But a uh, corrupt, active member of the media military industrial complex that is doing the bidding of a predator class make as much money as possible. Open it right up for them. Did you like President Putin's idea? 
Robert Mueller should go talk to him. Because I, I was I was fascinated by it. So they have a treaty where they work together with the United States because everyone said we don't have an extradition treaty, but they have a treaty where they work together and his prosecutors would prosecute it. And he said that Robert Mueller's people could go with them, but they probably won't want to. Yeah, interesting. Let me ask the 13 angry Democrats. You think they're going to want to go? I don't think so. Um, and of course, this pit bull, Andrew Weissman, who I think has a pretty atrocious record that we have found. It's very sad what's happening to our country because of this. We have We've never done better in so many ways, including economically. But when you see this thing going on, and I will tell you, it's driven a wedge between us and Russia. Maybe we've just knocked down that wedge, but it has driven a wedge. And President Putin said that one of the early things he said when we started, he said, it's really a shame because we could do so much good, whether it's humanitarian aid throughout the Middle East, whether it's not just Syria, uh, so many different things. The safety of nuclear, which is ultimately there's nothing bigger, nothing more important. And one of the reasons I played this is because look at how far we've gone. Now Russia's the full-fledged enemy again. And uh, yesterday, I was substitute hosting on uh, Making Sense of the Madness. I was also, I was supposed to get um, this whistleblower named uh, John Christmas. I'm not kidding. Yes, John Christmas. And uh, I guess he was the inspiration for KGB Banker. And it was going to go into the criminality aspects of Poot Poot, the KGB, the FSB, the alliances um, with the mafia there. And I think that that's something that people need to realize. I'm not a Russophile. I realize the corruption is big time over there, that Putin isn't the best guy. But Again, that's the type of corruption we need to be focusing on, not the imagination corruption where the Russians are hacking our election or backing Donald Trump. That's not real. That's not real at all. So what I want to do here is I want to go to my film, Invisible Empire, A New World Order Defined. And in particular, I want to bring up this FBI section that goes beyond Iran-Contra and the deep state and the drug dealing and the national programs office and into an era of total and complete corruption. Now, we could start with the 93 bombing, but this time around, I want to start with um, Oklahoma City and then have it lead into the FBI bombing because I think it's really important that we understand, you know, uh, when we talk about the first World Trade Center bombing, it precedes OKC. But OKC has that white supremacy flavor, right? Elahome City, the whole nine. And it's all part of the same thing. So let's cut to this. And this is um, the Oklahoma City into the World Trade Center 93 section, Invisible Empire, a new world order defined. Still believe that Timothy McVeigh was a right-wing extremist? who bombed the Oklahoma City building with a rider truck because he was upset with the government. People close to the event told a very different story. A local congressman believes that convicted bomber Timothy McVeigh and his accused co-conspirator Terry Nichols are not the only ones involved. The Oklahoma State Representative Charles Key produced a videotape featuring witnesses who claimed to have seen Timothy McVeigh with another man the morning of the bombing. He was wearing a ball cap. Timothy Bay had his on backwards, which was just like this. 
It was on his head. The other gentleman had his on like this. In fact, the FBI had actively pursued John Doe number two in its initial investigation, then denied his existence altogether. There were also multiple reports that explosives were found inside the Murrah building. The Justice Department is reporting that a second explosive device has been found in the AP Murrah uh, building in downtown Oklahoma City. Mm -hmm. uh, Mike, you're still with us, aren't you? Yes, I am. And I, and I might tell you, in addition to that, that in fact, what we were told at the scene a few minutes ago was that, in fact, two different explosive devices were found in addition to the one that went off. The second explosive was found and diffused. The third explosive that was found, and they are working on right now as we speak, I understand, both the second and third explosives, if you can imagine this, were larger than the first. Bomb squads were actually caught on video, pulling into the building to retrieve these devices. They'll back that trailer down there, and the uh, bomb squad folks will go in, and they will use that, uh, that trailer. You see the, the bucket on the back there, sort of, this is how they would transport the explosive device away from this populated area to try to do something with it. I just took a look down the street uh, at the Mara building again. I see another bomb truck going, so apparently they're gonna try to get out that third bomb that's been talked about. This was even confirmed by the governor at the time, Grant Keating. One device was, uh, was uh, deactivated. Apparently there's another device, and obviously whatever did the damage to the Murrah building was a tremendous, uh, very sophisticated explosive device. Members of the ATF who would have normally been in the building were tipped off prior to the bombing. He saw what appeared to be a police bomb squad truck near the Murrah building two hours before the blast. It had a shield on the side of the door, and it said bomb disposal or bomb squad, blow it, and I really found that interesting. Another witness who spoke to ABC News on the condition of anonymity will tell the grand jury tomorrow he was told by an ATF official agents working in the building had been warned in advance not to come to work. He just came out and told me that the ATF wasn't in the building that day. They'd been tipped by their pagers not to come to work, uh, which I was, flabber I was flabbergasted. McVeigh would even claim in a letter written to his sister which was published by the New York Times, that he was actually recruited for black operations, which included smuggling drugs into the United States, as well as assassinations. One may brush this off as the ravings of a madman. However, McVeigh was filmed at the Camp Grafton Military Facility in North Dakota on August 3rd, 1993. McVeigh's official records state that he was discharged over a year prior from the Army Reserve in May of 1992. Perhaps even more interesting, is that Camp Grafton was specializing in training troops in explosives and demolitions at the time. When all was said and done, the security tapes reported to have captured the entire thing on video were rounded up and classified. In 2009, they were finally released, and magically none of them caught the bombing. The excuse being they were all having their tapes changed at that exact moment. This event would be labeled domestic extremism, which was used to demonize critics of world government, militias, and create fear within the populace. Muslim extremism seemed to show its ugly face in then unprecedented fashion on February 26, 1993. So, so again, you got the white supremacy, 1995, you clearly got a corrupt Justice Department, a corrupt uh, FBI, a corrupt ATF at the highest levels, right? And then you have an incident like this in New York City that really could have been the original 9-11. A truck bomb had gone off in the parking area of the World Trade Center. 
Luckily, the bombers failed to follow instructions and parked the truck carrying the explosives against the main support column. What is not discussed, however, is the bomb was actually built by an FBI informant under the supervision of the FBI. Ahmed Salam, a former Egyptian army officer who had been doing undercover work for the FBI, was the man who actually built the bomb. When he was told that he would have to use real bomb-making material instead of harmless substitutes, he became suspicious and began taping his conversations with FBI officials. Last winter, the FBI was praised for its speed in cracking the case of the World Trade Center bombing and bringing four suspects to trial. Now, there is some evidence that the FBI may have known of the plot in advance through an informant and might, might even have stopped the bombing that killed six people. Notice the media emphasizes that they might have been able to stop it. They then gloss over the fact that the bomb was built by their agent under FBI supervision in conjunction with the district attorney. FBI agents might have been able to prevent last February's deadly explosion at New York's World Trade Center. They discussed secretly substituting harmless powder for the explosives, but they didn't, according to the FBI's own informant, Imad Salem. Unbeknownst to the FBI at the time, Salem recorded many of his conversations with his handlers. The actual recording where Salem discusses this with his FBI handler, John Antisev, was released years after the trial. You got paid regularly for, for good information. I mean, the expenses were a little bit out of the ordinary, and it was really questioned. Don't tell Nancy I told you. But well, I have to tell her, of course. Well, then if you have to, you have to. Yeah, because, I mean, the lady was being honest, and I was being honest, and everything was submitted with a receipt. Yeah. And now it's questionable. It's not questionable. It's like a little out of ordinary. Okay. You know. Right. I don't think it was. If that's what you think, guys, fine. But I don't think that because we was start already building the bomb, which is went off in the World Trade Center. It was built by uh, uh, supervising uh, supervision from the bureau and the GA, and we was all informed about it. And we know that the bomb start to be built by who? By your confidential informant. What a wonderful, great case. Hey, Jason, you're muted. Thank you so much. Sorry about that, folks. <laughs> oh, boy, it's a morning. So once again, you, you look at this stuff and you look at 9-11 and uh, the FBI is integral. Yes, we are muted. Thank you for everybody on there, <laughs> guys. And in numerous aspects of 9-11, it's not that the FBI doesn't know what they're doing. They're the cover-up crew, right? They, they've got some of the quote-unquote hijackers living with them in the FBI. Their investigation into what happened at the Pentagon, clearly a cover-up. Clearly, we never got the actual surveillance videos. All right, we got some frames 
that then can be debated on forever. And then if you dare to question what actually hit the Pentagon, oh, you're a bad person. If you dare to question what may or may not have happened over in Shanksville, you're a bad person. And I've got a small clip uh, from Loose Change here uh, that does just that. Well, Darren, in the last hour or so, the FBI and the state police here have confirmed that they have cordoned off a second area about six to eight miles away from the crater here where this plane went down. This is apparently another debris site, which raises a number of questions. Why would debris from the plane, and they identified it specifically as being from this plane, why would debris be located six miles away? Could it have blown that far away? Seems highly unlikely. Almost all the debris found at this site is within 100 yards, 200 yards away. So it raises some questions. We don't want to over-speculate, of course. It seems to me from covering a number of plane crashes on, on the scene that if nothing else, you can say this is not typical for a plane crash to be spread across an area this large. It certainly doesn't make sense because most of the, the debris has been found in a very compact area within 100 yards, 200 yards, maybe a little beyond that. And then all of a sudden they're telling us six miles away, they have another concentration of debris. They say it's very small pieces. Most of these are very small pieces. Most of the pieces here are no bigger than the size of a briefcase, they say. Mm-hmm. And the pieces six miles away may be even smaller than that. And, and when we're talking about this, this is uh, Flight 93. I want people to understand, you know, we're not talking about Indian Lake, which is really like a mile and a half, two miles away. We're talking about New Baltimore over a mountain ridge. Ask yourself, How in the world could a plane crash on the ground put debris six to eight miles away over a mountain ridge? Did they find a plane in Shanksville? Within the last hour. I want to get uh, quickly to Chris Kanicki. He was back there just a couple of minutes ago. And Chris, I've seen the pictures. It looks like there's nothing there except for a hole in the ground. Uh, Basically, that's right. The only thing you could see from where we were uh, was a big gouge in the earth and some broken trees. From where we could see, there wasn't much left. Any large pieces of debris at all? No, there was nothing nothing that you could distinguish that a plane had crashed there. Smoke, fire? Nothing, it was absolutely quiet. It was uh, actually very quiet. Um, Nothing going on down there, no smoke, no fire. Just a couple of people walking around. They look like part of the NTSB crew walking around looking at the pieces. How big would you say that hole was? Uh, From my estimates, I would guess it was probably about 20 to 15 feet uh, long and probably about 10 feet long or 10 feet wide. What could you see on the ground, if anything, other than dirt and ash? And You couldn't see anything. You could just see dirt, ash, and people walking around, broken trees. From the Somerset County corner to the mayor of Shanksville, Almost every eyewitness would remark how little of the plane and its passengers remained. And let me say this. I think it was last anniversary. I played clips of FBI agents 15 plus years later saying when they got there, they didn't even know a plane crash had occurred. Remember the coroner came out swinging, swinging the loose change crew for daring to quote him. And he uh, was on some anniversary special talking about going into the woods and seeing like melted plastic coming off the trees, but has never, never said there were any bodies there. Basically said, hey, there were no bodies. So I really didn't have a job to do. But when I got there, you know, I wondered to myself, where is it? You know, there was just, the plane was just totally disintegrated. The only thing we didn't see were people. Nothing 
uh, to indicate that uh, that there was even anybody on the plane. I remember asking a state trooper that was there to be sure, is that where the plane went down? It was so hard to tell because there was nothing around. So hard to tell because there was nothing around. But no, the FBI is not the cover-up crew. Let's see. FBI comments on United 93 on anniversary. Let's see if we can pull up that video. I have it somewhere, obviously downloaded, but we'll do it live. Let's see if Google Eye or Googly can help us here. Um, let's see. Uh, investigators tell of emotions associated with the United 93 crash. That's 2012. That's 2009. Let's see if I can find it. Um, that's with a tweet. That's 2021. Oh, let's see. Be the next hero. The investigation of United 93. Gee, I don't know. Maybe, maybe this is uh, it. It is the FBI. I think this might be it, folks. Let me see. This is it. All right. Great. <laughs> because it's, it's like 15 minutes long. This is officially what the FBI put out. Look at that. Uh, six years ago. So I'm not going insane. I've actually got my dates down. But let's hear what they have to say here, folks. I had an assignment to report to the Pittsburgh office that morning, happened to be listening to the radio. They had a report of a plane hitting the World Trade Center. thought, wow, I wonder, you know, boy, a mishap of a plane going to one of the airports or, you know, didn't, you know, strike me as terror at that time. I just didn't know what was going on. Of course, everybody remembers that, that first tower scene with the smoke. So we're kind of in and out, and then, then of course, the second plane hits. Just about everybody in the office, I think, had crowded into the break room at that time, and uh, everyone was, you know, obviously concerned as to what was going on. Then there was a report about the Pentagon. Initially, we were thinking, because I was on the evidence response team, that we would probably be going to New York to help there. And then when the plane hit the Pentagon, we weren't sure which location we'd end up at. We then got a call about another plane potentially coming our way that was in distress. They believed that it was coming from Cleveland and that it may need to land, crash land at our airport here in Johnstown. Now it was that this may be deliberate, that it may be acts of terrorism. It would potentially be a crime scene in our jurisdiction. Before we got to the airport though, we were told no, that divert from there, that a plane had crashed in Shanksville. And I just remember thinking, that's our territory, that's our squad. We're going to be heading out there. So I got back to my car and started out of the city as, as quickly as I could. Now, watch the intro. Everybody, you know, very aware of what was going on that day, totally remembering it, recalling it calmly within the office. Listen to what they say next. Be the next hero. Bum, bum, bum the investigation of United 93. Yeah, okay, the cover-up of 93. I think we finally arrived out of the scene between two and three o'clock that afternoon. The plane crashed shortly after 10 a.m. So we had uh, an RA out near that site 
and they responded initially. We would have been the first because it's 20 minutes from the uh, office as as we drove that day. I expected to see fuselage, uh, remnants of a plane, which I didn't see anything but pretty much smoke and some fires. No fuselage, no remnants of a plane, just smoke and fire. Okay. I saw absolutely no signs that an airplane was present, no matter what direction I looked. Uh, and no matter what direction I looked, there was no plane. Forget about a fuselage, wing, parts. I mean, everywhere I looked, there's no plane. <laughs> you didn't know that a plane had crashed there. You had a crater, and the initial crater was probably 15 feet deep, but we didn't have big plane parts laying everywhere. Okay, so that's three people. All there, aside from the other people we just showed you saying there's no plane there. This is the great magic trick, all right? And then what'll happen is uh, these people that love to attack, they got nothing going on in their lives. I mean, nothing. I mean, I can't imagine how pathetic some of the personal lives of some of the people that have attacked me over the years for pointing this out are. But uh, to this day, anonymous loser trolls that's what you are if you're watching this anonymous loser trolls that won't put their face to anything whatsoever promote these other trolls that want to be looked up to in the quote-unquote 9-11 truth movement and they want to attack people like me and richard gage and alex jones for daring to question things like what you're just seeing there and i'm the bad guy because I don't engage with losers, okay? I'll debate anybody in a forum. That's not what this is about. But what happens is you have uh, these people that want to be pushed to the top of the quote-unquote 9-11 truth movement. And those same people won't only attack you for stuff like this. They won't acknowledge that Building 7 is a controlled demolition, which is completely obvious. So what are they really there for? What are they really there for? They're there to sow discord within the movement so it can never gain the type of traction that it needs. And they're there to mock people that have done way more than they'll ever do and are actually working on behalf of humanity to expose this information. They're, they're the real gatekeepers, okay? And, and the people that jump into um you know the live streams or my twitter feed and promote these people god how pathetic are you you know they're the same people that'll shoot some bullshit out okay just put out whatever they want shoot out some bullshit and then now burmas is going to ban me you're an anonymous loser account of course i'm going to ban you i don't i don't feed the trolls yeah i'm gonna block you you're you're in here and you're commenting on stories that have nothing to do with 9-11, have no context, but you're promoting your loser, okay? Because I dare to point out FBI agents to this day coming out and saying, oh, we got there, we expect to see a plane, didn't see any plane. Didn't see any plane at all. Normal. <laughs> we should just accept that, right? We should just accept the robots automating us out on behalf of an anti-human predator class agenda. They're not here to empower us, folks. They're here to enslave us. And you know, I've got two um, videos of Bushnell 
that I don't often go over, at least not in full. I played little clips of, and one over, one of them is called uh, Taking Over What Will Humans Do in the Future? Okay, and this is where he's extremely long-winded. It's a 30-minute uh, show, but at the end, he tells you, they become us, we become them, or you have what? Human contaminated machines. And on the way to that, you have a system, if you're lucky, of a universal basic income where the robots provide the wealth for the rest of us. Okay. That's the head of NASA telling you about that automation. And yeah, it might start with some Chipotle and Chippy. And it might start with some Domino's and their automated driver delivery system where a robot comes off the back and gives you your hot pizza that was cooked on a conveyor belt by a machine. But that's far, far from the end of this. So um, I think I'm going to I'm going to play just the beginning of this Bushnell clip with this uh, this futurist woman uh, that he's had many talks with uh, on the robot takeover. the night i'm hazel henderson welcome to ethical markets since the 1960s we have seen machines taking over production lines and the jobs of cashiers telephone operators later legal assistants accountants and now performing medical diagnoses often better than doctors google owns nine military robot companies this shift to automation is now accelerating as Silicon Valley startups manage our social lives via Facebook, Match.com, and eHarmony. The radical efficiency of these digital firms is now taking over not only retailing, news, entertainment, manufacturing, and education, but also formerly safe white-collar jobs even automating finance and stock trading with robo-advisory firms like Betterment. Driverless vehicles will end the jobs of millions of taxi and truck drivers and that rite of passage for millions of teenagers in learning how to drive. I think that that's important because one of the things they want to get you on is not just their eco um, electric car system because they're trying to save the planet and they do want to uh, manage you know where you can go and how you can get there but they don't want you driving all right they don't want you driving at all that's why everything has to be autonomous so they can implement this system and that's what 5g really is has nothing to do with better speeds on your phone that's imagination land that's not real okay and by the way taxi driver thank you so much for the tip over at the Rockfin. No, they're getting ready to get rid of your purpose on the planet. All right. If the if the robots were really going to create wealth for the rest of us and a higher standard of living, great. Not what they're here to do. The rite of passage to learn to drive. It's kind of weird for me here because in Iowa, you can uh, begin the process of driving and getting your license at 14. My niece. Uh, my nieces are 12 and 13, and boy, the 13-year-old can't wait to become 14. And I'm just like, I, I could have waited until she was 16 to start driving is all I can say, guys. 
Economists always promise new jobs in new sectors, but this time it's different. What happens to humans as all these jobs disappear? We see the de-skilling, for example, of airline pilots who are less able to take over if their computer systems malfunction. Several accidents have been the result. The fundamental issue is how will human workers compete? Will retraining programs upgrade skills sufficiently? Or are we seeing the end of work as a means of earning a living? As we discussed with futurist Jeremy Rifkin in our earlier show on the future of work. Already inequality has become an urgent issue in the USA and Europe with wages stagnant for 30 years. How will advanced automated economies maintain general demand and purchasing power? so that consumers can buy the cornucopia of goods being produced. I and other futurists have been debating these issues since the 1960s when we welcomed automation. We expected it would take over dangerous jobs and allow even shorter work weeks and growing leisure sectors, travel, entertainment, flourishing arts, innovation and personal development. Never happened. Personal development, more vacation time. No, it turned in, uh, into a society where both people in the relationship, the man and the woman, the husband and the wife had to work full time. It went from a system of savings and earnings to a system of credit and debt. And smaller households, smaller families, a lower standard of living, less vacation time, longer work weeks. That's what actually happened. That's the reality. We explored how basic minimum incomes proposed by Milton Friedman as the negative income tax could underpin this shift. Employee ownership of companies has spread to over 11,000 firms so that when machines take jobs, workers can now own pieces of those machines. Today, all these issues are back on the table. And, and by the way, that sounds a lot like the idea of stakeholder capitalism that Klaus and the guys are going to sell you on. Oh, stakeholder capitalism is coming. You're going to own a part. No, you're not. That's bullshit. That's setting up the have everythings and the have nothings. And we played the clip yesterday. You know, the World Economic Forum might tell you you're going to own nothing and be happy. Well, I got news for you. Um, the eugenicists out there, the population control people are like, yeah, you know, we, we could maybe have eight, nine billion people on the planet, but we need a really smart dictatorship. And by the way, your standard of living is going to plummet. Somehow we want to peacefully get down to like 1 billion, maybe two, and then maybe you can have a decent standard of living. That's what they're talking about. All right, folks, the first hour is about to wrap up. I'm going to give the cue to the producers to try to make that transition right now. I want to remind everybody, if you are watching on YouTube, to thumbs it up, subscribe and share. Check out all the documentary films, including Invisible Empire and Loose Change Final Cut, of which 
you just saw a little sample pack of. We've also got some other great movies out there like Fabled Enemies and Shade the Motion Picture, all of which I'm extremely proud of and are free of charge. I would like you to share with others. We're on BitChute. We're on Band.TV. You can come on over free and listen to the rest of the broadcast over at the infowarrior.podbean.com. But if you want to see um, this lovely lady's face, you want to see Bushnell as he goes, ah, and ah, and ah, over the next several minutes to an hour, make that premium account over at redvoicemedia.com slash Jason. Use the affiliate link to sign up. Lock it in right now for 50 cents uh, for the first week. Just try it out. Then it's 10 bucks a month, or you can lock it in for the entire year at $100. Save yourself two months. I highly recommend it. With that being said, Rockfin, we will see you on the flip side. YouTube, real as always. Keep being that Trojan horse civilian system we love so much. Twitter, you know, um, I didn't even get to the muskernuts in his tweet, but uh, he did tweet out uh, a really interesting uh, graphic that was actually created by my uh, friends over at Truthstream Media. Maybe we'll talk about that on the flip. And Rumble, always real. We love you, Rumble. Okay, it looks like we're right there. I usually wait for the text. I feel like I just got the text. We are good to go. We are on the other side. So let's continue with this video. Whatever will we do with automation coming in? Guaranteed basic incomes have lifted millions out of poverty in Brazil and Mexico. Switzerland almost passed a bill providing all disemployed citizens with guaranteed basic incomes. Former FDIC chair Sheila Baer says, fixing the income inequality with $10 million of loans for everyone that was in the Washington Post. We are fortunate today to have with us NASA Chief Scientist Dennis Bushnell of the Langley Research Center in Virginia, who has written on many of these issues in today's age of automation and machine intelligence. Welcome, Dennis. So it's very good to see you again. Thank you for coming. And you. I mean, look at the little smirk on his face. Oh, we're going to be talking about the robot takeover? We're going to be talking about the slavery income. I love talking about those things. You know how these economists have been telling us we don't have to worry about automation because there will always be new jobs in the next economy, in the next sector. But this time it might be different. So um, how do you see all of these issues? And I have to ask you a question. Um, how come uh, you at NASA um, are worrying about these issues of um, automation and job losses and all of this kind of thing? Well, because I work for the Defense Department. And, you know, this whole facade of us going to the moon and Mars is just that, a facade. I run war game scenarios. I help to captivate the public's imagination while in the background, we utilize technology developed by the Defense Department for a number of things. That's what I'm really about. Well, there, there's a two answers to that. Uh, one is we're, we're worried about automation because we are relying upon automation to do space exploration. It, 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 it's, a, it's extremely expensive to use humans to do what the machines can do. And in fact, we have uh, a 
directive from the National Academies that the humans should only do what the machines cannot do. So as the machines get better, there's less and less for the humans to do. I see. Uh, so, so automation is our bread and butter for space and increasingly for aeronautics. I now, see. In terms of the impacts on the uh, on the society, uh, it's my job as chief scientist to do uh, the future planning uh, for what we should work on. Uh, with research that will be applied to society 10, 20, and 30 years out. Uh, in order to determine what we should work on, I need to know what the nature of society is 10, 20, 30 years out. So again, that's why his future strategic warfare document, where we ended yesterday on page 35, where we were talking about cyborg fish and uh, wartime robots that eat your biomass to survive. In other words, eat your corpse on the battlefield. That's the kind of lovely stuff that this guy's openly involved in, but most people don't even know who he is. Right. Well, now, you know, because I sort of come as a futurist uh, trying to look at the whole system, both the social system and the ecosystem, but I admit not very much looking at outer space. Um, then uh, my worries over the last 30 years um, have really been um, focused on automation, you know, beginning very early on, uh, when we futurists were looking at the automobile industry in the 60s, you know, and um, we welcomed automation. We thought, great, you know, this means we'll have the leisure society, you know, and everybody will learn to play the violin and, you know, all that. We have shorter and shorter work weeks. Look how hilarious it is to him. Yeah, no, we promised you that. We promised you that you were going to have all this free time and we were going to benefit humanity with automation. And that just didn't happen, did it? <laughs> and, of course, it turned out um, not that way at all. And so everybody's working two or three jobs and inequality is growing and unemployed people are having to rely on signing up to TaskRabbit, you know. And of course, those are reasonably um, interim kind of solutions. But those kind of jobs are part time. There's no security. And so that's not much of a future. So. You know, I was reading Wired magazine, the current issue, and I saw this photograph, you know, um, of robots. And I, I'm kind of thinking we have all these wonderful human beings with the magnificent brain that 3.8 billion years of evolution on this planet created. And why on earth are these things relevant here on Earth? I totally understand why they're relevant on Mars. Okay. Uh, you have to consider what are the limitations of humans. Oh, and there are plenty of limitations. Don't worry. And, and again, if you think that the Atlas robot, right, that they're showing you and the DARPA stuff is for space travel, again, that's the front. Even though they tell you that the first uh, um, Americans, if you will, the first of those in space will be the robots, will be the AI, will be the nanobots. And then don't worry, they're gonna surveil Mars, they'll come back with all the data, we'll be able to create a virtual Mars for you to visit if you want to. Seems rather convenient for these people. Okay, uh, in the case of driving automobile, for, for, for example, uh, human drivers are often uh, distracted. They're often inebriated. 
they're often tired, they're often ill, uh, they're often have an argument with the significant other and therefore they're upset. Uh, machines tend not to be that way. Uh, and in fact, what, what we're developing this time uh, is a, uh, essentially a second intelligence species. Uh, we are we're developing that second intelligent species that I constantly talk about, that Kurzweil talked about in the age of spiritual machines, that Martin Rothblatt is promoting at the Transformers conference, along with what NASA representatives, narrative representatives within big tech like Twitch and Reddit and the private contractors like Raytheon and Lockheed Martin. That's what we're doing. Duh, we're creating a second intelligent species. With, with the biomimetics where we're nanosectioning the neocortex and replicating it in silicon, uh, people ledge were 10 to 15 to maybe 20 years max up from having a human level machine intelligence. Uh, the nano robotics is giving all the dexterity, human dexterity and so forth. So when one looks uh, in the totality of the human versus the robot. Uh, the robot knows more. Uh, the robot has a much better safety record. Uh, in aviation, 85% of the safety issues are human factors. It's clear if you want a safer system, you have less humans. Uh, so if you want a safer system, you have less humans. And the people at the top already look down on the vast majority of us like we're not humans. Weird. The, the machines so far are, are uh, uh, more knowledgeable. The robot that we're using now to do uh, cancer research uh, and, and cancer treatments is, is much better than the human physicians. We're getting rid of the doctors. We're getting rid of the humans to drive the planes, drive the cars. We're getting rid of the doctors. We're going to get rid of the educators. We're bringing in robotic everything. It's not just Chippy and Chipotle, everybody. Uh, the the uh, teachers uh, uh, are, in fact, more effective, the robot teachers, in educating children. Uh, they're more creative, the child has more control and so forth and so on. The studies show that child's, uh, children learn four or five times faster than they do in, in conventional schools. And that's because conventional schools, uh, they, they have a, a large amount of time keeping order. Uh, the classmates are not always supportive for people who are, are brainy and intelligent and so forth and so on. So that, you know, the total education system for, for the robot teacher tends to be better. The robot teacher will keep the order. Yank. The robot teacher is going to keep the order. And really, it's not really a robot in most cases because they want to bring in tele-everything. It will be AI-driven. What they are doing is trying to take the human out of humanity and the experience. That's the reality, everybody. And we're going to make it a lot better. 
uh, the, the robot manufacturing, you, you had mm. talked about mm. the, uh, the the automobile business. I mean, that's a done deal. Yeah. Uh, uh, we've gone right. from a 60% manufacturing in the 1950s in the workforce down to 9% heading to 2%. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. so is, this leads me exactly to the question I worry about, and that is, what do we do with all of these human beings? Ah. See? And how... Ah. Uh, I don't think we look at the huge smile. What do we do with all the huge? Ah! He really lets his hair down if he had any in, in these interviews with this woman. Oh, what do we do with all those human beings? Cats out of the bag. <laughs> Training is going to be enough. Because you know, oh, retraining no, can't no. possibly keep up with um, the the speed of this is a very pithy of the, of the change, uh, you know. Uh, and uh, so I look back to the 19, 1960s when we futurists were saying, well, the only way to keep up aggregate demand in the economy and provide purchasing power broadly enough is to give everybody a guaranteed minimum income minimum income. See, even then he's like, yeah, no, no, no. That's just a mid part of the plan to kind of placate to you is we have you merge with machines and we fool you into believing that you can somehow upload your consciousness into the virtual arena. Yeah, no, we're going to automate you out for sure. And this UBI, look, you've been talking about it for years and she talked about how it was creating wealth bullshit. It's creating slavery. It's getting rid of your purpose as a human being and it's further empowering automation in a very real transhumanist agenda. And so uh, I can remember back in the 60s, I actually started a national citizens committee with Robert Theobald, who had written the book Guaranteed Income. And uh, we said, well, you know, Milton Friedman back then was the first one to propose a guaranteed income. And he called it the negative income tax. And he said, it was much better to give these people cash, like if they came under a certain amount of money, you the IRS sends them a check instead of the other way around. And then you could do away with all of these uh, social services and all the amelioration and the unemployment and blah, blah, blah. So uh, what- But they never wanna get rid of those systems because the more that you're on those systems, the more you're part of what? their command and control system. You have to jump through the hoops for that check. You have to take the authoritative, authoritarian mandates they impose on you via societal norms that they invent, okay? That they dictate. And we saw what happened during COVID-1984 and the medical techno-fascist tyranny. They, they not only lauded, they're continually putting into place right now. Happened, uh, I don't know whether you remember this, uh, but in the 1970s, President Nixon ordered a study um, of guaranteed income. And I lived in Princeton at the time and a Princeton company called Mathematica uh, conducted the study and they found frankly that it all foundered on the Puritan ethic and it was all about no worky no et and so that went away and so then I became very interested in my friend Louis and Patricia Kelso and they said well look 
why don't we have employee-owned companies? And that way, if the machine takes your job, you can own a piece of the machine. And now there are 1,100 companies in the U.S. that are owned by their employees. So um, what do you think is the right thing to do with all the people who are going to be disemployed? Okay, well, yeah. let, let's uh, first establish the boundary condition. The boundary condition, in my estimation, is that as the machines get more intelligent and so forth, uh, there will be essentially no jobs the machines cannot do. There will be no jobs. The machines can't do the creative ones, he says, will be the last to go, but they're going. They're all going. The machines can do it all. Chippy. We currently have creative software that that are doing ideation just as good or better than humans now. Uh, the creative jobs will be the last ones to go, but but I have not been able to discern any jobs that machines cannot do as machine intelligence and all the rest of, of the autonomous robotics develops. So now we're to your question, okay, what do you do with these people? Uh, there's essentially three options. Uh, you covered one, which is the, the guaranteed income, and the machines can produce the productivity, the wealth necessary to pay this, it's just the machines do the work instead of the people. Yes, you have to change the cultural uh, milieu, but, but uh, you know, this is eventually doable. It's eventually doable if we have our social engineering to get you to accept a slave income, which you can spend as we say, because it's not gonna be the cash system. No, it's gonna be the CBDC system of programmable, I'm sorry, programmable tokens that only allow you to spend the money in a certain time or in a certain geographic region or on certain goods and services. But don't worry, we can change society through our social engineering and make this possible. Well, thank you, Dennis. Uh, this is the this is only one approach. Uh, uh, the second approach is the fact that uh, what's changed since you last looked at this is the whole technology level. And we humans are now converting ourselves into cyborgs. Uh, we now have artificial retinas, artificial hearts. Uh, we have brain chips. Uh, DARPA's working on brain chips for super soldiers. Uh, we can have a, a high bandwidth cop port uh, built in so, so we don't have to use the sensors and they're very limited uh, bandwidth. And, and, and eventually this all ends up with, with uploading into the machines. And instead of us versus them, humans versus the machines, we become them or they become us or you end up with human contaminated machines. Human contaminated, I play this, that part of the clip forever. Human contaminated machines. The fact that she's not wide-eyed and being like, wait, Dennis, human contaminated machines, shouldn't we preserve humanity? Why are we merging with the machines again? And I believe the uh, third thing he's going to talk about are really the uh, DIY societies, quote unquote, on steroids. The people that do not opt into this, that they are not able to call all right, that are outside of their system. And in that respect, you know, the next part kind of gives me a little bit of hope because I'm certainly, you know, if we get to these levels, going to be a part of that type of society. Now, that's the second one. Uh, 
The third one is developing in a very interesting way, very rapidly. And that's the fact, it, it starts from the fact that in the 1830s, in the agricultural age in this country, some 94% of the workforce were subsistence farmers and very few people had jobs, very few people were employed per se. Okay. Uh, then we got into the Industrial Revolution, moved people to the cities, ruined the social interactions that you had in tightly knit agricultural communities, and and and, and learned how to spell alienation. Okay. Yeah. Uh, now <laughs> I mean, you, you got to give him credit. He he's pretty open about it. He's like, we ruined the relationships built in these agro societies. Okay. And we we uh, spurned alienation. I mean, again, the guys give him credit. He's very honest. Now, what we have coming now is a very interesting juxtaposition of uh, tele-everything. People can now telecommute, tele-travel, tele-education, tele-medicine, tele-commerce, tele-manufacturing with the printing manufacturing coming mm -hmm. along. You have uh, people who are now going off all the grids, off the water grid, the sewage grid, uh, the, the food grid, and the, and the electrical grid. These are people who can do do-it-yourself on, on steroids. It's a revisit, modernization of the old subsistence farms into a self-sufficient electronic cottage uh, where uh, people can manufacture and make and utilize whatever they want without having to buy anything from anybody. Well, you know. And again, that's the 3D printing revolution. This is what Kurzweil sells you on when he's telling you the truth that overpopulation isn't a thing and that once we hit this area of technology where we're actually using renewables, right? And I'm not talking about a carbon-based credit system. I'm talking about the real renewables that could empower us. Sun is the one, guys. And he says we only have to, you know, tap into about one ten thousandth of the sun's power and do that by 2030. And basically our entire energy problem is solved and the population problem is solved because you can live anywhere. And we've only used about 5% of the usable land. Unfortunately, Dennis doesn't take to that ilk. He still thinks that we're overpopulated. He still... Uh, goes with that sustainability agenda. He's just letting you know that this may be one of the options for others. You know, if they decide not to automate everybody out and you decide not to what? Uh, bow down to, bend the knee to, take part in this transhumanist agenda where you merge with machines. Well, it's very interesting because I uh, kind of came uh, upon that vision very, very early myself. And I decided, okay, the transition is going to be away from this centralized industrial fossil fueled kind of economy where everybody has to live in cities or, you know, um, and really you could decentralize with solar energy, wind power, energy efficiency, all the new technologies, new batteries, and uh, basically go from the old electric grid, you know, to microgrids and uh, people generating the electricity off their rooftops. And uh, I love the idea, you know, of the Maker Revolution, the book that um, Chris Anderson wrote a couple of years ago. And so I agree that that 
probably is the optimal future scenario. And by the way, the maker's movement is something that Martine Rothblatt discusses when um, we're discussing artificial intelligence, robotics, and the creation of the entities that Bushnell discussed right here. Um, but it's it, getting from here to there um, that's going to be the problem. And in my view, it's going to be kind of like um, a 20, 30 year old transition. And the problem right now is the incumbent fossil fuel industry and all of their client politicians in Washington, uh, whom they pay, um, you know, campaign funds to. And we have right now in the Congress 93, no, 73, last time I looked, climate deniers. But they don't just deny that the planet is, um, atmosphere is warming and the oceans are warming. They don't even believe in evolution. And so they are stopping the solar transition that I write about all the time when I was at OTA. Um, I first realized all these possibilities in the 70s. And basically, they're holding it up. They have, I can remember Jim Fletcher, who used to be an administrator. I mean, sometimes when Dennis just sits there, he does have that robotic look, doesn't he? And he laughs about them not believing in evolution. Well, Dennis has also told you in 2018 that basically natural evolution is over of all species, not just human beings and that human beings have now taken control of evolution. And one of the things that we discussed via the NASA document he wrote back in 2001 is directed evolution, the future strategic warfare document, folks. NASA, I served with him uh, for six years, and he used to tell us, you know, if we had given enough, sub the same amount of subsidies to solar, wind, energy efficiency, geothermal, OTEC, all of that, as we have given to, um, to oil, coal, gas, and nukes. He said that the U.S. could have been a total renewable energy-driven economy by the mid-1970s. And here we are, we're still fighting this. That's all true. Uh, it's all true. We could have done it. We didn't want to empower humanity, unfortunately. And he's going to talk to, I think he talks about here, uh, if I remember correctly, the cycle of politics and Wall Street's, in, Wall Street's involvement. The truth is that the people at the very top, the predator class that controls everything, don't want to empower humanity, don't want them to have cheap, renewable energy, because what that creates is a society of independence and abundance for the uh, class of people they don't even consider people. They consider you the bugs they want you to eat. That's why they didn't come to fruition. Uh, the, the, the actual point of fact case today with regard to subsidies is that the subsidies for the fossil carbon is now four to five times what it is for the renewables. Yeah. What's changed, and, and the word hasn't gotten yet to the politicians, but it will. What's changed is, thanks to the research started primarily in the Carter years, and since then, that, that the renewables, in terms of efficiency, but particularly in terms of cost, okay, and particularly over the last four years, uh, the costs have plummeted to the point where, except for photo, photovoltaics, and, and that'll be here within a couple of years, uh, the renewables are, are all 
less costly than fossil carbon. People are shutting down coal plants, okay? Uh, the climate denial is a large percentage, I think, associated with pure economics. The climate denial is just pure economics. Again, you're a denier if you don't buy into their command control system that carbon dioxide is the evil poison. He's not talking about all the estrogen mimickers. He's not talking about the uh, pharmacological drugs. He's not talking about the mercury runoff from the coal. No, it's all carbon. These damn deniers. With sunk cost, with the uh, stranded assets, and, and all the effect of that financial business has on the whole political process. And now, today, as we sit here, six seven percent of all of the new generation capacity worldwide is now renewable energy i know and, and, you know. and in the last two months a hundred percent of the u.s new capacity has been renewable energy so yeah. renewable energy has won okay it's just that that victory hasn't yet percolated up to the political process so <laughs> what you're seeing i i i I think it is the last gasp of the old order. Yeah. Well, you know, we think that too. And that's why we produced the Green Transition Scoreboard. And we thought, you know, we started that um, for the 2009 uh, Copenhagen Climate Conference. And we knew it was going to be a train wreck, you know, and we knew. Which it was a train wreck because a bunch of their top doctors had their emails published where you found out they were hoaxing. They were hoaxing. That's why. You know what? You know, I, I have my, my film queued up, but I want to keep that queued up as well. And the problem is if I go to home now, there's Invisible Empire. Perfect, because we're off air. And let's see if we can bring up the Copenhagen Climate New World Order Summit right here and their scam, okay? And their, their population control scam. That's what it is, okay? There, there, there's uh, the Copenhageners right here. Okay, let's see if we can get there. There's the Barack star. There's the Chinese style New World Order. And here's my graphic for Copenhagen. Nice little picture of Mao. Let's go to that clip right now. Our state building, once a proud symbol of the United States, was lit in the colors of the Communist Party halfway across the world. In fact, following the United Nations Copenhagen Conference in December of 2009, the Washington Post ran the headline, Copenhagen climate deal shows new world order may be led by US, China. The Copenhagen conference was disguised as a summit that would save the planet from man-made global warming by cutting carbon emissions. When taking a look at the almost 200 page document that was being proposed, it becomes evident that this was yet another attempt to establish global government and set up a global tax. In section 38, it states, the scheme for the new institutional arrangement under the convention will be based on three basic pillars, government, facilitative mechanism, and financial mechanism. In section 47, subsection F, it discusses cap and trade schemes and carbon taxes and the use of new and existing flexible carbon market mechanisms. These cap and trade schemes were just that, a scheme to further transfer the wealth from the poor to the ultra rich. One of the ways it will drive the change is through global governance and global 
agreements. The fact that our president even attended should be considered treason. Just weeks before the conference, Climategate hit the media. Secret emails confirm that many of the United Nations lead scientists had engaged in fraud in order to promote the idea that man-made global warming was occurring and that carbon dioxide was a toxic gas. In reality, they admitted the Earth had been cooling for the last decade and that they had destroyed the source data in order to ensure the scientific community would be unable to review their findings. Bill Jones was forced to resign from his position at East Anglia University, and Penn State has launched an investigation into Michael Mann. Because of the scandal, many countries refused to sign the agreement, and instead only 25 heads of state, including rock star president and savior Barack Obama, signed a much shorter and broader accord. The document- A new hope in the clouds is God on the Rolling Stone cover, saving us from climate disasters. It states that a high-level panel will be created and that parties will be subject to domestic auditing, supervision, and assessment. The climate conference in Copenhagen is another step towards the global management of our planet. Dude's got like the face, like, like if you burned his face off via like a, an Indiana Jones film, he looks like Slender Man. Right. Oh, the, the climate mechanism. We find finances. Yes. It's like so much. The idea that carbon dioxide, the life force for plants here on Earth, is a toxic gas and should be taxed is laughable. There have been numerous periods of time in which the Earth has had vastly more carbon in the atmosphere than present day. In areas where there have been volcanic eruptions, which emit large amounts of CO2, plants have benefited and there is no negative impact on the surrounding environment as well as indigenous people from the excess carbon dioxide. You wanna see more? Invisible Empire is free. Let's go back to Bushnell and the gang talking automation and human contaminated machines and of course, climate change. That although 193 countries were naming and blaming and shaming each other, we knew that they were leaving on the table the one thing they all agreed about. They knew they would have to move to a low carbon kind of economy. But the, the, the shift to renewables, this is very important, the shift to renewables has little to do with uh, climate consciousness or anything to do with climate. Right, it's to the do shift with cost. Renewables is purely economics. Yes, and, well. And, and we're going to have to also fix the ecosystem, which is crashing. Yes, right. Oh, it's the ecosystem, and the ecosystem's always crashing because there's too many people doing too many things, according to Ted Turner. Maybe we should continue playing that down because that, that's exactly what happens is Ted Turner lets us know because Ted Turner and Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, they decide, they decide how we should live. The globalists promote this theory to keep mankind in fear, not only for the establishment of a global government and a global carbon tax, but the literal control of the entire planet. An even darker side to the scam of man-made global warming exists. In reality, it's about population control. Ted Turner reveals himself here in this interview with Charlie Rose. We've got to stabilize the population. When I was born, no, there so were what's too, wrong with the population? I mean, with too many people. That's what. That's why we have global warming. We have global warming because too many people are using too much stuff. We've got to stabilize population on a voluntary basis. Everybody in the world's got to pledge to themselves that one or two children is it. Not doing it will be catastrophic. We'll have eight degrees. We'll be eight degrees hotter in 10. Again, th this interview, well over 10 years old now, just to let everybody know.
not 10, but in 30 or 40 years, and basically none of the crops will grow. Most of the people will have died, and the rest of us will be cannibals. Civilization will have broken down. What The few people who are left will be living in a failed state like Somalia or Sudan, and, and living conditions will be intolerable. The droughts will be so bad there'll be no more corn growing. It, it will, it, not doing it is suicide. Unbelievably, when Turner met with other globalists, David Rockefeller, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, Michael Bloomberg, and even Oprah Winfrey to discuss population control, they were portrayed as superheroes. Behind closed doors on this New York campus, a secret gathering of some of the world's most powerful people. Gates, Buffett, Bloomberg, Winfrey. It was like, well, it was like the Super Friends. In the great hall of the Justice League, there are assembled the world's four greatest heroes. Together with others at the meeting, including George Soros, Ted Turner, David Rockefeller, they're worth more than $125 billion. The new Superman and Wonder Woman, the super rich friends, not fighting bad guys, but fighting for good nonetheless. I mean, uh, he loves Captain Planet. When I say he, I'm talking about Ted Turner. But does anything want to make you throw up in your mouth more than watching a culturally appropriated Wonder Woman via Oprah or... You know, maybe the Green Lantern and Bill Gates fit, fit because you have that psychopathic Hal Jordan storyline where he like just went around and killed a bunch of people. Remember that? And then, yeah, no, Ted Turner's Superman and Warren Buffett's Batman. And I got to agree, if I was going to slap a superhero costume on Mike Bloomberg, it would definitely be Aquaman. All right. Back to Bushnell. We're probably going to wrap it up soon, guys. For some reason, I am sitting here sweaty. I got to be honest with everybody. My alarm didn't go off. Got up last minute. I looked at my clock. It was like 6.15 in the morning my time. I was going live in 45 minutes. Not great, folks. Not great. And then we get in there and I connect and all of a sudden my video's not working. I got to reconnect. Uh, I, I'm muting myself when I shouldn't. Not the best reality rants. I hope that you can forgive me out there, Burma's Brigade. I hope you can forgive me out there, Red Voice Premium subscribers. Hopefully, hopefully you're enjoying the content regardless. But it's the new and, and economics. People come to me and say, if I did X, Y, or Z, would that fix the ecosystem? And I said, only if X, Y, and Z saves money is financially uh, curative. Well, you're looking now at the new economics and what we teach asset managers here at Ethical Markets. We teach asset managers about internalizing all those external costs on which the fossil fuel yeah. industry was based. There the never would have been a fossil fuel industry if they had not been able to externalize all of the costs, the health costs, yeah, the environmental costs. And that's now changing. That's changing the game. Yeah. Okay. If, if you really want to be successful, and, and this is what the renewables have done, you play the game on their turf. That's what we did. Okay. Yeah. As opposed to changing the game, changing the valuations and so forth and so on. You know, yes, I agree with you. That would have been good. But in terms of being efficacious, okay, in terms of having things instituted in real time, in, in, in the last four years, there has been a vertical revolution in the literally in 
in the renewables, and it's totally because the price has plummeted. And the and part of the reason for that is that the last 20 years, the socially responsible investment movement, of which I have been involved in, has now reached the point where one out of every six dollars invested on Wall Street is in companies in renewables and yeah, that don't have heavy social and environmental costs. And the new driver, which is now pushing the stranded asset debate and frightening the asset managers with the whole idea of devaluation of their portfolios, is coming from students as well who are saying, you know, divest. And so basically, the those are the people that have been brainwashed into the sustainability movement that Bushnell's been pushing for over a decade on behalf of what population control and bringing you into the virtual age via a transhumanist movement. Those it's forces now. Without changing winners and losers. Right, exactly. Okay. But, but it's a, it's a confluence of those forces now that are coming to bear on asset managers. They're terrified of all of the forces out there, uh, and they're also terrified of the stranded assets and that their portfolios may lose value if they don't shift to the, the renewable the, sector. The distributed generation for electricity and energy. It is worrying the power companies greatly, oh, yeah. and uh, several of them have said that they're seriously thinking in terms of a business plan going forward of uh, selling internet access over these wires as opposed to electricity because they know people will no longer be buying this. And stuff. that would be great because it would take it would break up the duopoly that we're dealing with here in a small southern city of AT and T and Comcast, who are denying us broadband, and so we, we would just love that. But also, they have an interim strategy. Uh, EPRI um, has an interim strategy now for the uh, big power companies, and that is pushing EV electrical vehicles. And what we're saying is, okay, we are with you on electrical vehicles, but they must be uh, funded uh, they must be powered by renewable energy generated electricity. Never going to happen. That's the big joke. Not possible. If we yeah, can make that you, deal. You can power electric vehicles or hybrids better off. Uh, the Brits make a bioreactor that you put in your back porch, you put in your sewage, your kitchen scraps, your yard waste, and, and you know, that's where you get your fuel. Uh, it's it's hard in a residential setting to generate enough electricity to uh, uh, you know power a vehicle. Oh yeah, but I mean the point is that those um, electric power. The the point is that the vast major majority of the electricity used for the electric car, etc., are not renewables. Okay, but they want to starve you out. They want your standard living to plummet. They want the energy court, the energy cost to shoot through the roof. Look what's happening in Europe. Look what's happening in this country with oil and gas, period. It is real. All right, folks, I am going to wrap it up. I will be back tomorrow. I hope I'm going to be locking in an interview uh, for the second hour. We'll see if we get there. Like I said, we had Randy Ireland on yesterday. I would encourage you to check out all the other great premium material here at Red Voice media.com including the alicia powell shell and of course self-defense warrior with jeffrey wilson 
and Pat Militich. I am Jason Burmis. We will be back tomorrow. I hope you check out the documentary films. Or if you've never seen Bushnell, if you're new to the program, check him out as well. But Loose Change, Final Cut, Shade the Motion Picture, Invisible Empire, A New World Order to Find. And of course, Fabled Enemies, all free of charge. I love you guys. Thanks for joining me. And I will see you all on the flip side.